Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. It is 300 years ago this month that Robert Walpole became Prime Minister of Great Britain. In today's episode, Walpole's biographer, Professor Jeremy Black, talks to the critics, political editor Graham Stewart, about how the role of Prime Minister evolved in its first one and a half centuries. The role of Prime Minister in Great Britain is the uh, longest surviving office of political leadership in the democratic world. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black how would you place it in context? Well, thank you. I think that's a good topic for us to discuss, not least because in recent weeks, there's been quite a lot of publication to mark the 300th anniversary of Sir Robert Walpole becoming First Lord of the Treasury, which to many people seems to, as it were, initiate the history of Prime Minister. Now we'll discuss the validity of that in a second, but if I could direct listeners' attention I think in particular, there's an important book by Anthony Seldon, there's a collection edited by Ian Dale, there is a lesser work, I think it's fair to say, by Andrew Grimston, and there was an interesting um, article in the Times by Daniel Finkelstein. So I think it's fair to say there's been quite a lot, and I want to really take part in our discussion in terms of that. And can I first start off by saying it is very easy for academic historians to appear to carp. I am not carping. It is good to have this public interest in our history. It is good to see commercial publishers and newspapers engaging with this aspect of the history. And what I am trying to do is to add another layer, I hope, um, others may think I've got, I'm full of mistakes, but that's fine, add another layer and not to say, oh, woe is what's already happened. So let's start off by making the point that the notion of a leading minister, which is what we might think of as a prime minister, is one that, of course, didn't begin with 1721. You can find many examples of ministers earlier in uh, English history uh, and indeed in the history of other of other countries. I mean, obvious examples, and this in no way exhausts the topic, would be, for example, Earl Goodwin under or Godwin under Edward the Confessor in the 1050s, or William Cecil Lord Burley under Elizabeth I or his son Robert Cecil First Earl of Salisbury under James I or the Duke of Buckingham under Charles I and Clarendon under Charles II. And that no way exhausts the list. And indeed, in the 1720s and 30s, the leading opposition newspaper in England attacking Walpole, a newspaper called The Craftsman, drew attention to earlier examples of what they saw as the same um, uh, same role, they thought it was a bad role, somebody that monopolised too much power, and they would be apt to cite Buckingham, they'd be apt to cite Suffolk, who of course Henry VI minister murdered in 1450, they would be apt to cite Sejanus, who was the advisor of the Roman Empress Tiberius. So this is in no way new. Now why 
people have tended to focus on the early 18th century is twofold. First, the Glorious Revolution of 1688 to 89 is held to have initiated a new system of government, a system of parliamentary accountability with Parliament sitting every year and with regular elections, a process that was put in place constitutionally during the 1690s. And Walpole is held to have been the first uh, minister to really dominate that system. Well, again, that's slightly misleading. Um, in the latter years of Queen Anne, for example, in the period 1710 to 1714, there was just such a figure, Robert Harley, uh, first um, Earl of Oxford, and he was you know, in many respects, a, a figure very similar to Walpole. So I think we actually need a more broken up beginning to this process. And indeed, as far as Walpole himself goes, as you may know, I've written a book called Walpole in Power. And in many senses, Walpole really dominated the political system from 1720, um, when he makes up his peace with George I. And rather than 1721, when he became First Lord of the Treasury being crucial, either you should put the, uh, the focus on 1720, or on 1722, when his principal rival in the uh, ministry, the Earl of Sunderland, died, and when also uh, Walpole uh, won the general election of that year. So anyway, that's point one. But point two, which I think is an interesting one, is we need to be aware that the formal office that we call prime minister, and indeed the terminology, again, has a more ragged beginning. Um, there are various dates that could be ascribed to when there is an a officially named prime minister, uh, and that is officially attached to a particular um, status. Uh, dates that are commonly used are 1905, for example. Disraeli himself used the term prime minister in 1885. But in general, prior to that, um, people might have had the idea of a leading minister, but they didn't in general use the term prime minister. And I think we need to be aware of that and linked to that, although many first lords of the treasury were leading ministers, there could also be leading ministers from other positions. So William Pitt, first Earl of Chatham, um, is generally regarded as being the leading minister of what is known as the Chatham administration, which came in in 1766. He was not first Lord of the Treasury, he was Lord Privy Seal. Um, uh, I think you might fairly say that John Earl Carteret was the leading minister of the Crown from 1742 to 1744. He again was not First Lord of the Treasury, um, he was Secretary of State for the Northern Department, in effect Foreign Minister. So I think you have to be careful before some of the points that were made. And the last point before we begin our conversation, I'd rather pushed you to one side, I apologize, but I just thought these are important parameters to introduce. The last point is that some of the more interesting and valuable, but um, shall we say, questionable is going too far because they're serving a different purpose. I myself have taken part in this process in the magazine, uh, the BBC History magazine, um, sort of trying to say who were the best or the weakest prime ministers. Um, I think one of the problems with that is that 
first ministers, prime ministers, whatever you want to call them, were operating in very different contexts. And in two in particular, I would draw attention to. One, the, the position of the first minister vis-a-vis -vis the monarch. So what the first minister could do in the 18th century was very different to what the first minister might be able to do today. And second of all, the position of the first minister vis-a-vis -vis political parties, the kind of modern notion of a political party with party membership, with MPs very rigidly members of one political party or the other and fighting their seats on that basis did not pertain like that in the 18th century. So again, we have to understand very varied contexts. Now, I hope that hasn't undermined every single question you intended to ask me, but there's a start. Well, it, it, it's quite a start. Uh, and uh, before we, we look at how uh, the premiership as Walpole uh, understood it and developed it, how that uh, developed over the next uh, um, uh, decades and centuries, I want to just take a step back and if we look at the period after the Glorious Revolution, the 30 years or more between uh, the end of the Glorious Revolution and Walpole in, in 1721, um, the most important ministers during that period, I mean, people like uh, uh, Earl Godolphin under Queen Anne, uh, would Godolphin have had different powers or would have interpreted those powers that he had differently to Walpole? Or are we really just seeing a difference of personality? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, right. I think, first of all, there are several things to say. Walpole, the key thing about Walpole in some respects is that he stays in the House of Commons and he is the manager of the House of Commons business and he identifies that as the key element of um, the way he wishes to uh, show the king, two successive kings, G1 and G2, that he is valuable to them. I think it's fair to say that Godolphin, like Harley, for example, who we've already mentioned, like Sunderland number one uh, under William and under, under William the Third and James the Second. Um, very much identified power more as sitting in the House of Lords and the court. And it's not that they were wrong and Walpole was right or vice versa. What they were capturing was the nuance of authority and power, or the nuances, I should say, of authority of power in that position. And one of the points I would make is that Walpole ultimately, uh, as I tried to show in various publications, while he was the key figure in the House of Commons uh, from 1720 onwards, um, frequently had problems really until 1733 with um, House of Lords politicians who were his rivals whom could look to the king. So if you're thinking about um, the 1720s, you'd be thinking obviously about uh, Carteret and Townsend. If you're thinking of the 1733 political crisis, you'd be thinking about people like um, Stair and Dorset. And whilst leading the House of Commons was important, it still didn't mean he had the kind of power that we might associate with the office. Now, one of the problems in some of the literature that has come out is it's underplayed the continued 
political salience of both the House of Lords and of the um, of the uh, of the Crown and the Court. And I think that those are both significant factors in the 18th century, and Walpole was well aware of them. And indeed, as you may know, uh, Walpole falls as a result of political crisis in 1741 to 42. The key players in the political crisis against him are the Prince of Wales, Frederick Prince of Wales, and the Duke of Argyll, with in particular his Scottish political influence. Uh, these are both sort of figures who are not House of Commons rivals. Uh, George Bub Doddington, Lord Malcolm, is another key figure against him. So in some respects, Walpole's ability to lead in the Commons, where he was a brilliant debater, much in command of his, his material, helped enormously in his position, but it didn't give the kind of status that you might expect um, in the 20th century. I mean, ultimately in the 20th century, uh, you've been able to pass Parliament Acts, which have limited the role of the uh, House, of, uh, House of Lords. And ultimately the monarch has very much, particularly from George VI onwards, played a very subdued role in the political process. Well, there are two thoughts that occur to me as you're speaking. One is Walpole, the unusualness in the 18th century of a prime minister being in the House of Commons. I wouldn't go as far, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. I would say he, I would say it was unusual in terms of looking backwards. If you look forwards, I think you would say that the other three most successful in terms of longevity um, uh, parliamentarians, uh, first ministers of the 18th century are all House of Commons men, which is uh, Henry Pelham, um, who really directs government business in the Commons uh, from 1743 until his death in 1754. Frederick Lord North, he's called Lord, but of course that's an honorary title because he's the son of the first Earl of Guildford, uh, who directs government business in the Commons from 1770 um, to uh, the beginning of 1782, and William Pitt the Younger, who directs government business from uh, December 1783 to 1801, and again 1804 to his death in 1806. Interesting, if William Pitt had been, or Henry Pelham had been, uh, older brothers, they each, older first sons, they each had an elder brother, um, whether their political position would have been harmed by being in the House of Lords. But that's a different question. Sorry, anyway, go on, go on. <laughs> interesting question all the same. Um, the other thought in my mind is uh, Walpole has what for him might have been the benefit of, for most of his time as Prime Minister, George I as King, a king who is relatively reticent to get um, as involved in day-to-day -day domestic British politics as, um, other, as other kings. Um, is that a unique set of circumstances which therefore gave Walpole an advantage that those who had served either Queen Anne before or uh, the latter part of George II and George III afterwards did not have? Again, fascinating question. No, it's not a unique thing. I mean, if you think going back, uh, William III had, you know, he knew quite a lot about English politics, but he spent most of his reign abroad. He was also Prince, Prince of Orange, and more particularly, he was playing a leading role as a general in the fighting in what we would call Belgium. Um, uh, so William III was essentially a non-resident for a lot of his time. Queen Anne suffered 
from the restrictions posed by ill health, as well as being a woman. And George I and George II, Walpole was mostly there under George II. Uh, Walpole, uh, sorry, George I and George II, uh, as you say, I think that, um, first of all, it's the feeling out of a new political system, the one after the Glorious Revolution, and what that means in terms of political management. I think it's also a very interesting and different one. William III very much wanted to run a government in which his choice of ministers was not limited by parliament, and he wanted to have mixed ministries, in other words, both Whigs and Tories. So did Queen Anne. And indeed, to a certain extent, both for parts of their reign were successful, though it's also fair to say for parts of their reign, particularly the last period of Queen Anne's reign, there was a total failure. George I, when he came in, and George II, in fact, if you look at his early statements in 1727, said exactly the same. And they understood in their own minds, these were not stupid people, they understood that a mixed ministry would give them much more clout. But they found their options constricted by the extent of two things, really. One, the extent to which many, not all, many Tories were either Jacobite in sympathy or could be presented or feared to be Jacobite in sympathy. And that was a big issue. And it was more particularly a big issue because of the fact there'd been a rising in 1715 to 16. There'd been another Jacobite attempt, smaller one in 1719. There was the Atterbury plot in 1722. So, you know, Jacobitism was an option. And, um, you know, historians differ. Essentially, Linda Colley would argue that, that most of the Tories weren't Jacobite. Evelyn Cruikshank took a different point of view. But the point is not so much what was right in that. The question is what was perceived, and George I became quite uneasy about the Tories as a result of the 1516. Uh, separately, there was the extent to which Whigs out of office in opposition were always quite keen to you to ally with Tories in order to try and push themselves back into office. Walpole himself did that between 1717 and 1720. Um, uh, William Pulteney was to try and do that after 1726. Um, William Pitt the Elder was to try and do that. But once in office, these Whigs tended to go for a Whig monopoly of power. So again, there's actually interesting, if you think about it, modern parallels here, that when you're trying to get into office, you might well ally with people who you then try and shaft once you've got into position. Um, but uh, that was certainly the position in the early 18th century. Uh, the title First Lord of the Treasury, uh, the more formal term that, that most prime ministers were, were, known, uh, were known as, is still... Uh, the title, of course, of the Prime Minister. How much of a clue is that to the role that the Prime Minister was always perceived to have as the man really controlling the purse strings of the government, particularly since the title of Chancellor of the Exchequer is actually much older than First Lord of the Treasury? Well, thank you. Again, that's an interesting question. First of all, the thing to bear in mind is that the title First Lord reflects the idea of a council or conciliar form of government. So you also had a First Lord of the Admiralty, for example. And the, uh, the alternative, I mean, the key thing is First Lord of the Treasury, not Lord Treasurer. First Lord of the Admiralty, not Lord High Admiral. So 
the idea is that you're a part of the treasury mechanism, you're the leading figure in the treasury mechanism under the crown, uh, but you are not, um, shall we say, like medieval Lord Treasurers. That I think is an important, or Lord High Admiral, Lord Admirals. I think that's an important point. Now, as far as Walpole specifically is concerned, I think a key element is that um, the government needed to get its business through Parliament. Whereas today a government can um, print currency or in fact just electronically issue it, uh, shaking the money tree to use the modern term, uh, ad infinitum apparently, though whether that's going to be the case it's worth thinking about, um, that was not the case in the 18th century in which, until we went off the gold standard in the late 1790s, we were operating a much more complex process of managing national debt but trying to maintain confidence in it because ultimately it was in theory based by a notion of convertibility into bullion. So every year it was necessary to get through the House of Government, House of Commons and the House of Lords, but the House of Commons was the harder one. It was a larger house, it was more independent in its tendencies. It was, it didn't have the sort of payroll vote of the bishops or uh, some of the Scottish peers. It was necessary, or the courtiers, it was necessary to get that business through. And you didn't have to be the first Lord of the Treasury to do, to do that, but you did need to be able to have somebody who was in a position to talk about Treasury business and finance business. Now, Walpole developed this expertise in financial affairs, like Henry Pelham did, like North did, like William Pitt the Younger did. This was a matter of their personal expertise. Some First Lords of the Treasury were terrible. I mean, Augustus Third Lord, Duke of Grafton in the late um, 1760s, who was briefly First Minister, not, not, not impressive. I'm pretty certain he was First Lord of the Treasury. I'm happy to be corrected there, but he was not an impressive figure. Uh, I'm just trying to think. I think Rockingham was First Lord of the Treasury as well. I don't think, you know, the, I don't think he would be regarded as an impressive un, uh, for his ability to either understand financial matters or to get that relevant business through. Uh, Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmington, who was First Lord of the Treasury from 1742 to 43. Um, was one of the weakest prime ministers in British history and wasn't, in fact, the directing minister anyway. Uh, and Carteret, in many senses, was the directing minister. So I don't think, per se, being First Lord of the Treasury necessarily meant that you were the master of government business or even the master of treasury business. Um, but in the hands of an expert, it was important, and it was important because it brought together your ability to win the confidence of the money markets, to command the agenda of government business in the House of Commons, and to manage the government's patronage. And generally, the Treasury was the body best placed to manage government patronage. Now, you can look at that in all sorts of uh, ways of looking at it. I mean, people today are horrified to be told that people in the 18th century used bribery and corruption and so on, because today, obviously, no friend of a prime minister would be appointed to the House of Lords or to an embassy or to a quango, because essentially they were a friend of a, of a prime minister and be uh, regarded as 
totally uh, honest. So, you know, obviously we have completely squeaky clean prime ministers of the present moment. I mean, obviously I'm being facetious. The, um, I think it's fair to say that uh, staying this side on whatever you would regard as things that are unsafe. I think people in years to come will look at people like Blair or Mandelson or Cameron or look at Gordon Brown and the Dunfermline Building Society and they will probably say things similar to what we might say today about some of their 18th century politicians. I couldn't take it much further because I don't want to get into trouble but I would direct listeners to the pages of periodicals like Private Eye to see full attention to some of the obvious probity of these figures. Well, uh, let's just talk a little bit more about patronage and the role, particularly of the 18th and early 19th century prime ministers as distributors of formerly royal patronage. I mean, one thinks about the appointment of bishops and so on. I mean, Downing Street still does that, but not really. I mean, it, it goes through the motions of it, of it taking the, the advice of, of appointment committees. But I mean, the appointments of bishops... Come, and others... come, 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 come. Now, look, look. Are you seriously telling me, I mean, for example, in terms of the influence in the public, Church of England in the 18th century, I mean, the current archbishop is a joke. I suppose the nearest equivalent today would probably be the people heading the running the BBC. And you would agree with me that, as we know, the government played, I'm not saying they were right or wrong to do so, um, but they played a significant role in trying to influence the head of it. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm simply saying anybody that believes today that patronage doesn't operate is naive to the nth extent. I mean, Callaghan making his son-in-law ambassador to uh, Washington, or Cameron making one of his chums ambassador to Paris. This is not; these were not appointments that reflected what would have been due process uh, in any other form of public life. They would be regarded as an abuse. All right. So let us cut aside any idea. I mean, I'm obviously biased in favour of the 18th century because I've read a lot of these people's correspondence. I understand how they think. And, you know, as I said, you might be able to convince me that we have figures of great probity over the last 30 years and that these are people who are outstanding, never been influenced by personal considerations, never tried to pack the House of Lords, etc., etc. And if you wish to persuade me of that, good luck. But I, all I'm saying is I think one should be wary of saying that the 18th century was more corrupt than today. Not least because it's worth bearing in mind that 18th century MPs were not paid. Mm, mm. Well, uh, let's just focus... And more members of the House of Lords have uh, daily allowances of more than £300. And I can tell you, I was once taken to lunch by the in the House... I was taken many times in the House of Lords, but on one occasion, a peer, who shall remain nameless, um, Took me, so went, took me to see the chamber, then went and sat down for three minutes, nodded at somebody, and then came out again and said, well, I've done that, I've now made myself, and he told me it wasn't the current figure. And I just thought, wow. But, I mean, you know, the idea that we are sort of not got our own problems um, in terms of public probity. And, you know, you see the same thing in my field, in universities. You know, if you're a chum of a vice chancellor, you might get pushed up to be head of the Equality and Diversity Committee, even if you've got not a stroke of ability. I mean, these sort of things, unfortunately, are endemic across public life. So get away from the idea that the 18th century was more corrupt.
it was okay we'll 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 park that idea uh i just want to focus for a moment on the uh ecclesiastical appointments uh, something which was given much more attention in the 18th century than, than it generally is accorded now um taking a very broad view was that a real area where uh prime ministers were minded to focus on personal preferment amongst you know, friends and families, or was it really party focused, particularly as the party system uh, gets more established uh, in the 19th century? Well, as far as ecclesiastical appointments were to the level of bishops and archbishops, these people sat in the House of Lords, and the House of Lords was far smaller than today. I mean, obviously, that's because today we have a far more talented society, so we have lots and lots of members of the House of Lords. I mean, you know, we don't need to have the sarcasm, but you know exactly what I'm trying. I can see you smiling. We know listeners can't, um, you know, realise that this is an enormous laugh, these interviews. Um, but the... Um, the, as it were, um, and you know, there are distinguished scholars, I would refer in particular to Bill Gibson on the 18th century church, but from my point of view, reading the political correspondence, I think it's fair to say that under G1 and G2, um, the both monarchs who were Lutherans uh, actually, although they went through their doing it properly as heads of both the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, uh, left the ecclesiastical management to ministers. And the prime man who ran the ecclesiastical management for the uh, position from the 1720s to the um, 1750s was Thomas I, Duke of Newcastle, uh, who was responsible for the government's majority in the House of Lords. He was advised by the figure known as Walpole's Pope, Bishop Gibson, but it's essentially Newcastle. And Newcastle was fundamentally motivated by political alignment. Are these people safe and reliable? Um, George III, who came to the throne in 1760, has this radical idea that he expects his clerics to be religious. I mean, George III, of course, was personally devout. I discussed that in my book on my biography of George III. There's a chapter in it on George and religion. Um, he was personally devout. He expected bishops and archbishops to be personally devout and figures of probity, and he expected to hear about that. And um, so I think it's fair to say that his assumptions were rather different. But under G1 and G2, yes, it was very much done on, on party lines. They were very, it was very much the Whigs dominated the bench of bishops, but much of the parochial clergy were Tory. Uh, I want to move on to um, democracy and the way in which, certainly before the railway age, prime ministers aren't expected to be going around fighting national general elections. Sometimes Gladstone is described as, as the first prime minister to uh, fight general elections on a national basis. I'd be interested in your views as to, as to whether you think that that's fair to accord Gladstone that, that um, role. Uh, before the 1870s, 1880s, uh, really, uh, I mean, how much interest did prime ministers take in the views of the country uh, insofar as those could be divined and, and approaching general elections, or were they very much focused on uh, London, Westminster, the court, uh, keeping a parliamentary majority and the various intrigues that go between Westminster and, and, and court itself? Again, that's an excellent question. Lazy people will tell you, indeed, I was told yesterday by somebody who should know better, that 18th century 
governments did not lose general elections. Well, no, that's not right. You were regarded as not winning an election unless you had a majority of over 60, because anything below that figure was likely to be attenuated rapidly. And a classic demonstration was the election I've already mentioned in uh, late 1741. When I say late, it's not that I'm being forgetful. General elections were not all held on the same day in this period. Um, and in which the uh, Walpole won by far, far small, too small a majority, and he was out by... Um, by that February, February 42, or again, um, I mean, if the, um, if you look, for example, at the 1780 general election that gave North a pretty good majority, uh, but he still falls in 1782. So I think it's fair to say that first ministers and other ministers, I mean, in one of my books, I quoted Henry Pelham very much about the 1747 general election. And he talks about, Henry Pelham was a member of the House of Commons. He had to stand for election. He was particularly interested in elections in Surrey and Sussex, uh, which is where his and his brother's interests were, though, brother also had a lot of interest in Yorkshire and he talks about what the views are in Surrey and Sussex and again in one of my books I cite the Duke of Dorset which who was a Kent uh, despite the fact that the Duke of Dorset he was a Kent magnate living in Knoll and very much talking about what's likely to happen in the Kent 1734 general election which was a very major contested seat so no people or there's a book by Robson on the 1754 election for the county seats in Oxfordshire so people were aware of what you might call public opinion, at least as measured in terms of the opinion of, that is going to affect general elections in particular constituencies. Uh, that does not mean that individuals will career around the whole country electioneering, but it was, if you were in the House of Commons, it was normal, I mean, essential if you sat in a, a county seat, um, to go to your constituency and treat the electors and generally be seen. And you could be quite politically powerful, Rockingham, for example, in Yorkshire, if you were sort of known, as it were, as a key figure there. Yorkshire was regarded as a very important county seat because it was the county seat with the largest um, electorate. Um, but as you say, it's not easy for people to traipse around the country. And it also ought to be pointed out that although we have the youngest ever prime minister in the 18th century, in the uh, uh, figure of William Pitt the Younger, uh, we also have uh, first ministers who are elderly, uh, frail. I mean, his father, um, the uh, Earl of Chatham, William Pitt the uh, the Elder, the first Earl of Chatham, and you know, there's a, a limit to what you could do. It might not necessarily help. I mean, there's not a formal party in the modern sense, and it might not necessarily help if you are a leading figure as a Whig or a Tory and you turned up in a constituency. They may not be interested in seeing you, and it might be to the considerable irritation of those who are locally politically powerful. Now, in the 19th century, um, we have the a factor that you've already seen in the late 18th, which is the fracturing of political parties, if we wish to use their term, and the remaking of them. Um, and therefore, it's not always clear what you would mean by 
national party electioneering, particularly when you have prime ministers or first ministers who split their political party. And in, I found it quite interesting listening to and reading what other colleagues, scholars have written about their gauges of success and failure of, of ministers. I would have thought one of the biggest criteria of failure for a prime minister is if you split your political party. Uh, not least if it helps it to lose office, but particularly if you split it. So under that basis, for example, Robert Peel, who split the Tories in the uh, 1840s, and William Gladstone, who split the, uh, the Liberals in the 1880s, can be seen. And indeed, Herbert Asquith and Lloyd George, who split the Liberals in the 19-teens, 1920s, can be seen as among the least successful British Prime Ministers from that criteria. I'm not saying that's the only criteria to use, but that is a criteria that I think has been underplayed. Now, um, by um, the um, late 19th century, I think it's not just the railway, I think it is the much larger uh, newspaper press as a result of the end of the so-called taxes of knowledge, the taking off of newspaper taxation, I think uh, linked to much cheaper newspapers, Daily Mail of course famously, linked to a rise of mass literacy um, due to the Forced Education Act and other such measures, means that there is an electorate that can be much more concerned about politics and are told about politics and as far as men are concerned as a result more particularly of the second and the third reform acts not the first reform act so much you have a mass electorate and that feeds through into general elections so the so-called khaki election of 1900 in which the liberals split as to whether they support or don't support the Boer War, and the electorate punished them very severely by giving an overwhelming majority to the Marquess of Salisbury's government of conservatives and liberal unionists. Uh, that very much is an engagement by a, a degree of the public which is very notable. And you can look at individual parliamentary seats and very much see them being discussed in terms of whom supporting these various political groupings, uh, whereas you would have been hard pressed to do that if you were looking at the general election of, say, 1780 or 1790. Um, 1784 a bit different because you were either being seen very clearly as pro the king or or against the king in that election. Um, so I do I think it's not just the railway. I think it's a number of factors, and also again, of course, by the end of the 19th century, you've got mass voluntary organisations, most obviously the Primrose League for the Conservatives, which are trying to engender widespread public support and political identification. So that goes forward, and I think that does take you into a different political world, not necessarily better, not necessarily worse, but a different one. Mm. In the, uh, let's say, half century before the 1867 Reform Act, how, how busy would a prime minister be? Obviously, some difference depending on the personality. 
But um, uh, compared to in the first 50 years of the 20th century, uh, would you expect to find a, a very significant difference in the in the working hours of a of the mid the mid 19th century prime minister compared to uh, maybe not mid 20th century because of the, the period of the war, but um, at the first half of the 20th century? Well, I think you're wise to mention the wars because the two world wars obviously were cripplingly busy. Um, and of course, there's another factor. I'm not trying to be difficult here. Whereas Britain itself, after the Crimean War ended in 1856, although it fought wars in the colonies, most obviously the Indian Mutiny, and then subsequently the Boer War and, you know, 1899, the Second Boer War, 1899 to 1902, um, there weren't obviously any wars of the severity of the First or Second World War. Um, several things to say. Prime ministers could be busier if they also held other offices of state. So Salisbury, whom we've already mentioned, was also foreign secretary. Um, that, you know, um, Disraeli goes to things like the Congress of Berlin. You know, uh, this keeps you pretty busy. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, a lot did depend about on the um, political conjuncture and the personality. I mean, you know, Harold Macmillan famously had time to read Trollope and, you know, boasted about the fact. And uh, and uh, whereas, you know, I, there's been an interview today in which Tony Blair has said how busy he is. And, you know, David Cameron said how busy he was. And uh, so I think there are differences that reflect conjuncture, differences that reflect the range of activity. I don't think there's any doubt that when Britain was a member of the European Union, there was the most enormous amount expected of them. Uh, things that reflect technology. I mean, nowadays, um, if there is an issue elsewhere in the world, the, uh, the head of state there or the uh, prime minister there will expect, if they ring London, to speak to the prime minister. Um, you know, they don't want to be fobbed off with the foreign secretary. They will, they will expect the prime minister. And so I think that there is a, a, a set of conjunctures that have changed matters. But I don't think there was a really golden age in the mid 19th century. I mean, I don't think Palmerston was lazy because he was able to go down to, you know, his country seat. I think, uh, and I was struck, I did a book um, some years ago on the struggle for hegemony in um, North America, um, which, although it was dated 1519 to 1871, it concentrated really on 1783 to 1871. And I read a certain amount of Palmerston correspondence and then Palmerston-Russell correspondence. Uh, Russell, for some of the time, was Foreign Secretary. And, you know, Palmerston was having to be aware of really quite a range of government business um, in a whole host of uh, negotiations with European powers, with the United States, and a whole host of transoceanic, tra non-Western non imperial disputes. And um, the fact of the matter is, he might have been able to sit down in his country seat and address some of them, but that doesn't mean he wasn't working there. Mm. Um, so I think that... Uh, you can argue, I mean, you know, in my book on the informa you know, inf information, I argue about how the scale of government changes in the 19th century. 
Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make the burdens more or less. A lot of those burdens are great as a matter of the task. One thing I would say is it probably as government administration gets bigger, it becomes more of a problem from the point of view of government leadership. And I would say that's a characteristic of modern uh, politics uh, and modern prime ministers of whichever political party that actually to get the administration to operate in what they see as an appropriate and efficient uh, policy program is one of the major tasks they have to face. Well, we can't conclude a discussion about... The no, no, no. What we must do is conclude this looking towards Disraeli and Gladstone from the earlier perspective. Uh, let's do that. Let's call time um, as we reach the age of Gladstone and Disraeli. And uh, next week, we will pick up the role of the Prime Minister uh, from that period onwards. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.